We've been going through 1 Thessalonians, and chapter 1, verse 4, sets kind of the theme or the method through which we're approaching this book. It mentions three things. Verse 4, it's verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. Faith, hope, and love. And we decided to look at this book. I, I thought it was helpful to me to look at this book with three questions in mind. First, who or what do I trust? Everybody trusts someone or something. I, I don't care if you belong to this religion or that religion or no religion, if you're an atheist or an agnostic. There's things you trust to be true on which you found your thinking and your life. For us, that's the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. The second question that we've been asking is, how do we love? Love is popular. Everybody agrees that love is a good thing. But for us, when we answer that question, we say, true love is living out the design of the creator who made us as people, who knows how relationships work and how societies work. So the way we answer that question is by saying, we want to love in a way that pleases God, our Lord. And the last question is that we've been looking at is, what do I hope? We all have dreams and longings for the future, and they're very important because they set the course of our lives. That's what we aim for. And for us as Christians, we've been seeing in this book already that it's our hope in the promises of God and the coming of his righteous kingdom. So today I'd like to return again to this second question. We've been sort of rotating through these questions and this is how do we love. And I'd like to invite you to take your pulse today on that question. How do you love one another in the church family? It's a vital sign. That's been the theme of the series. It's a vital sign of spiritual health. When John wrote his first epistle, 1 John chapter 4, verse 30, has this really dramatic statement. It says, if we don't love one another who we can see, we can't say that we love God who we can't see. Amazing, isn't it? So that's what I say. Let's take our pulse as to how we love one another. The text that was read is the example of Paul the Apostle. This is how he loves the Thessalonians. Now, some of us may say, well, he's an apostle. What can I learn from him? You know, he's special. He's way above here. But we can't dismiss this. There's a reason why this is written. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, we're told that we should follow the example of the apostles and others who are further along in this pilgrimage of following Jesus. So, in other words, we should particularly follow the example of Paul here. How do we love one another? Let's look at a few points made in this text. I've been whittling down these things all week long, and I've whittled it down to just three points, but there's many other things that you might find as you read and study this same passage. So I'm going to just look at it under three headings. You'll see as we look at the example of Paul that love is personal, love is wise, and love is anxious. I hope you'll grasp something else that's happening in the midst of this. It's not just instructions on how to love, but it's really, you'll see, a wonderful promise that if we love with this kind of love, 
we exercise our spiritual muscles and grow and mature spiritually ourselves. So I'll try to show that in each of those three cases. So let's begin with the first one. Love is personal. Notice in verse 17 of 1 Thessalonians, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. And I want you to notice two phrases here. First of all, this obvious phrase that he begins with, brethren or brothers and sisters. He's already used it before in the letter. But you can see that he's saying that the church is a family. Brothers and sisters. It's an expression that's used throughout the New Testament to refer to Christians. It's the acknowledgement of the fact that the Holy Spirit has made us one. We have one Father in heaven of whom we are born by the one Spirit. Jesus himself used that expression. Both in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel, people came to him once, including his mother and his brothers, and somebody said, your mom and your brothers are outside. Jesus said, who are my mothers and brothers? Those who hear my word and do it. He also referred to the fact that following him, being in him, makes us one family, brothers and sisters. So what that means is that when we gather as a church, when we gather to worship, it's really a family gathering. This is a family reunion that's taking place this morning. And we should think of it that way. Church is a family and it's a a gathering of all kinds of people. Now, some of you may say, you know, some of the people in church are kind of hard for me to deal with. I have to tell you, I don't even know if I want to deal with them. Can't I just skip that? I could live stream. Don't have to meet any of those people. So here's the second phrase. It's the word face. Or in the version that Robert read, face to face in verse 17. Having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, more eager to see you in your face, to see your face is there also. And then it occurs again by implication in chapter 3, verse 6. Timothy has come. He's brought us good news of your faith and love and that you're always thinking of us. Longing to see us. You see, it's face to face. And then that word face is used one more time in verse 10 of chapter 3. As we might day and night keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face. There's something about being together physically. I'm so glad that people are able to live stream and zoom in. And, and thank you so much for watching. There's lots of reasons why people live stream. And, you know, some excellent reasons having to do with health or geography, having to do with all kinds of other circumstances. Paul had a kind of an ancient equivalent of live streaming, didn't he? Very slow download speeds, but he could send letters, you know, back and forth. And he sent emissaries back and forth. Our text talks about Timothy being sent to Thessalonica to find out what's happening there. So, you know, he was in contact, but he says, what I really long for is face to face. God's made us that way. Our bodies are important. Your bodies are important, and to see each other and be with each other. You wanted to hug them, you wanted to read their body language, you wanted to see the expressions on their face. Were their shoulders slumping with discouragement, or were they buoyed up with zeal for the Lord? Face to face. We miss some things when we're not there. You can hear about it afterwards, how church was, you know, you could, you could live stream, you could listen on the radio or on 
on the website, but we miss something when we're not there face to face. As I mentioned last year, we had to zoom into our daughter's wedding. Really grateful that we could do that. And in fact, I have to say it was very convenient in many ways, you know. No driving, no hotel reservations or costs. During the wedding, I could wear a nice shirt and tie and have pajamas on underneath. Nobody knew <laughs> what was going on. And right after it was done, I could go mow the lawn. You know, there's a lot of convenience to, to that kind of a thing. And I could, I guess we could start to think that maybe we should do it all weddings like that. We should do all family reunions like that. What would you miss if you zoomed into a family reunion? I would miss the good food. I would miss the unplanned things, those awkward moments that you couldn't say, okay, be there at three o'clock on Saturday and we're going to zoom together. You know, the, I mean, I remember times when the family was coming together, the turkey, as it was being taken out of the oven, slid out of the pan and onto the kitchen floor. You know, you can't zoom that. Say, you can't plan that. Remember the family reunion where the kids found a whole nest of baby snakes? You can't plan that. Those things happen. But those unplanned human Awkward, funny moments happen all the time. And you know the family is going to be talking about that and laughing about that for years to come. You want to be part of it. And the same thing is true with the family gathering here at the church. We, could, we can maybe miss all that the Holy Spirit is doing here on the edges during the unscheduled times. All the tender, humorous, memorable, heartwarming things that the Holy Spirit does, that we do as God's people. Like some of you remember the baby that was passed five, six rows back and forth above people's heads. Remember that? It was like he was body surfing back and forth. I, I don't know what was going on, but the little thing went back and forth several times. Like seeing people gathered around a brother or sister, heads bowed, praying for someone who has a particular need. It's seeing God at work. It's things that we have to see in person. So what Paul is saying is that he wants to be there face to face because church is an in-person gathering. Because we're not just observers, we're part of the action. Everything that's happened involves all of us all the time in person. And what happens as we gather in person? Well, yeah, there's awkward people here. I'm not talking about you, I'm talking about the other guy. You know what I mean. There's people that are hard to deal with, but that matures us. It grows us in our ability to love as we deal with you know, misbehaving aunts and uh, cousins who don't know what they should or shouldn't do. Of course, every family has some, even the church family. For some of you, I may be the hard person you have to deal with. And for others, you may be the hard person they have to deal with. We don't know. They're too kind to tell us. In Thessalonica, there were hard people that Paul had to deal with, and yet he longs to be with them. As you read First and Second Thessalonians, you can see people loved them, but he also mentions some problem people. He says there some were unruly. He mentions that in the last chapter of this book. Undisciplined, lazy. They're creating a kind of chaos in the church. He mentions others who were factious getting together in little gossip groups 
uh, criticizing and going against those who were responsible for church life. He mentions those who were confused. He says, no, 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 no. I didn't say that the resurrection has already happened. Wherever did you get that idea? Then he explains again the truth about what God says. But very patiently, he, he loves them. He cares for them. There is, every church has people who are awkward. That's why I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 7. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. There's an optimism to love. Love hopes all things. Yes, about God, but also about people. Hopes all things for what God will do in people and endures all things. It's it's profoundly optimistic about the power of God to change the lives of brothers and sisters. The one that you can't stand, the one that you think is hopeless, the one that just aggravates you, God is at work in that brother or that sister. And, and love is eternally optimistic about what God can accomplish through his infinite power, even in the ones who have those jagged, sharp edges in their personality. So that's the first thing. Love is personal. And if we understand and we enter into that kind of a relationship, uh, our love grows mature. We, we start to understand all that God is doing and will do in our brothers and sisters. So here's the second word. Love is wise. True love is wise. If we're wise, we recognize in order to love, we have to engage in a spiritual battle. Look at verse 18. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Isn't that a remarkable verse? Satan hindered us. We don't, of course, think of love as a spiritual battle. Honestly, the truth is, we hardly in our day and age think of anything as a spiritual battle. We, we think in very materialistic, tangible, physical terms. Cause and effect, you know, it's only have, having to do with things we can touch, feel, and see. But the Bible sees a whole realm of spiritual beings. It teaches about that. Angels that are sent to minister to us from God. Messengers, you know. And also dark angels, spirits who serve Satan, who's the accuser of Christians, the adversary of God. He opposes at every turn that he can the Holy Spirit of God and his work in our lives. And so here, you notice Paul's wisdom. Remember, we're trying to think of Paul as an example to us in how to love. And Paul says that he is able to see that Satan was hindering this face-to-face meeting where he could show his love to the Thessalonians. Satan hindered us. He kept us apart, it says. It's hard to see, I think. It requires a, well, walking with the Lord for a while. We can be easily fooled. In 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, in fact, it says, I'm sorry, the 11th chapter, it actually says that one reason we're fooled is because Satan disguises himself. Sometimes he comes as an angel of light. Something very inviting, something warm, like, well, as warm as a soft bed. No, I don't want to get out. Who wants to go to church? This is so comfortable. Comes as good as the aroma of warm coffee, a soft chair to sit in, or a cute little toddler with a onesie dragging his teddy bear behind him saying, I don't want to go to church. 
okay, honey, how can I possibly say no to you? The message that Satan brings comes in many forms. We say, no, no, it's not. I don't see any spiritual reality behind my choice, whether I'm in church or not. I'm just busy. It's life. And yet, isn't it interesting that that the worship of God is the one thing that's difficult to fit in? We fit in all kinds of other things. I mean, people will go attend sports or play sports, take our kids to sports. I really admire the parents who take their children to ice hockey. I I really do. They have to get up like at 3 in the morning because that's the only time you get ice time. And they do it. So we make time. So why is the worship of God so hard to fit in? Is it possible? That's all I'm saying. Is it possible that there's a satanic influence hindering us from doing this? Paul says it was true for him. There was an evil hand hindering him from doing what he wanted to do in loving the Thessalonians. So we have to be open to that because if we're blind to this force of darkness, we really give those forces free reign. But when we love others, you see, we're becoming mature, we're becoming wiser, and more discerning. We're beginning to see not only does the evil one keep us apart, but he also sows seeds of discord among us. We have all kinds of natural reasons for why we're at odds with somebody or the other in the church. But we should look to see what is the evil one doing. You know, you try to reconcile with someone, meet, connect with a person, and there's all kinds of natural reasons why it's not working out. In some way, you're hindered, but you give a special, rather a natural cause to it. Oh, you know, she was just surrounded by people, couldn't talk to her. He's gone for a while, I can't talk to him. We've just been busy. It's just not the right time. I don't feel it's right. All these things, but do we ever pause to think, could this be a satanic hindrance? God is keeping us from doing what the Holy Spirit is so intent in doing, uniting us, making us one. So as I read at the very beginning of the service, Ephesians 6, 4, the Holy Spirit says, be diligent, make, make every effort, work hard to preserve the unity which the Holy Spirit has created. And so the evil spirit works directly contrary to the Holy Spirit and does everything he can to tear apart brothers and sisters, to divide and splinter the unity that the Holy Spirit has created. Do we see this? We should at least be open to the possibility that the evil one is pouring salt into the wounds which separate brothers and sisters from each other. He rejoices when we're apart from each other. But love overcomes evil because we have the grace of God. We have the power of the Holy Spirit in us, leading us and giving us wisdom how to deal with this. Thomas Brooks was a pastor in the 17th century, and he he wrote a little book. You might almost call it a little manual for Christian living. And he gives some advice, I would say, on how to deal with people who you're at odds with. Maybe you think of them as fractured, sharp-tongued, jagged-edged brothers and sisters who are members of the church family, but awkward in the way they behave, they make you uncomfortable. He has many, many pieces of advice. I'm just going to share three or four very quickly. Here's the first one. This is my paraphrase. Focus on the strengths and delights in others rather than on their weaknesses and warts. Here's how he puts it, Thomas Brooks. It is sad to consider 
that saints should have many eyes to behold one another's weaknesses and not one eye to see each other's graces. Where do you focus? You know, every one of us has flaws. Every one of us. I've learned that if I'm going to have any friends in my life, I better overlook their flaws. And if I have any hope of them being my friend, they better overlook my flaws. But there's many graces that God has given, and that's where we should focus. Here's the second piece of advice. Dwell more upon those choice and sweet things wherein you agree than upon those things wherein you differ. He says, here's the things we agree on. You agree on the greatest and weightiest things, things concerning God and Christ and the Holy Spirit and Scripture. Dwell on those things. Here's his third piece of advice. Dwell upon the miseries of discord. Count the cost. Is this really worth quarreling over? Think about how it'll hinder the freedom of worship you have when you come together. Think about especially how it'll dishonor the name of Christ. He says, dwell upon the miseries of discord. And then here's one last piece of advice. He says we should take the initiative to make peace. This is a high and noble thing to do. He points to the example of Abraham. You should read it, Genesis 13. God had given him all this land. God gave it to Abraham. And his nephew Lot was quarreling with him about water rights. And you know what Abraham did? He didn't say, well, Lot, go find someplace else because this is my land. All of it is. No, he said, tell you what, Lot, take whatever land you want. Go ahead. And whatever's left, that I'll take. What a high and noble thing to do. And then Thomas Brooks says, but there's even a better example. And that's God himself. Think of it. We offended God. God had every right to, you know, wipe us out for the things we've done to dishonor him. But what did he do? Instead, he took the initiative and he paid the price to offer us peace. So Brooks says, yeah, in the world, if you do this, if you live like this, you'll be considered naive and you'll be considered a fool. But he says, don't go along with that. This is a God-like thing to do. It's a princely thing, he says, to be a peacemaker. So true love, you see, makes us godly. It's a spiritual battle, but as we fight it with the tools that God has given us, with the wisdom that he gives us, we grow spiritually. We grow emotionally. All of our relationships mature because we begin to see that, there are, that it's a really a spiritual battle outside and inside. And we begin to grow in that. So true love is wise. It's the truth of what Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.10. We focus on the other person, how they've hurt us, how, how they are spurning us, disrespecting us, aren't doing what we want. Paul says, no, 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 you've got it wrong. Ephesians 6 verse 10. We don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, the world rulers of this present darkness. It's Satan that's hindering the unity which the Holy Spirit is fostering among us. So true love is personal. True love is wise. It it has insight into the spiritual realm and how it affects relationships. And thirdly, true love is anxious. Verse 1 in chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, can't stand this, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone. He didn't like being alone, but he said, the only companion I had, Timothy, we sent him. God's fellow worker, to strengthen and encourage you 
in your faith, so that you would not be disturbed by these afflictions, but yourselves know that we have been destined for this. So verse 5 again, for this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now, verse 6, that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always think kindly of us, longing to see us just as we also long to see you. He says, now we are comforted. Now we really live. True love is anxious. Anxiety is one of the things that I hate. I want it taken away. Well, if you don't want to be anxious, don't love. You're only anxious about people that you love. You only worry about people that you love. If you don't love anybody, you'll never worry. We worry about those that we get to know intimately and that we love deeply. So the reason Paul is worried about them here is precisely because he does love them. It's a manifestation of his love. He's worried about their faith in chapter 3, verse 5, that it would be waylaid by the tempter. You see, Satan's at work even in confusing us in our spiritual walk. We don't pay attention to the teaching, preaching, or reading of the word, and Satan comes in, Jesus said, and snatches what little is there out of our mind. And he's worried about that. And he's anxious, chapter 3, verse 12, anxious, wants to pray that they would be growing, abounding in love. He's worried. If you don't like to worry, don't love. But if you love, you will be anxious. But isn't that evil? Well, not for a Christian. Because for us as Christians, every anxiety overflows into deep, earnest prayer. The way we express our anxiety is not just sleeplessness and stress in our bodies, but prayer. We go to the one who can deal with that situation when we are far away and unable to do anything. And so true love, you see how it works for us? True love deepens our prayer life. So what does Paul say? What thanks can we render in return for all the joy with which we rejoice before our God on your account? As we night and day keep praying most earnestly that we may see your face and complete what is lacking in your faith. He prays and he prays night and day. Without this love that drives us to not just long prayers, you know, night and day, repeated prayers, night and day, but earnest prayers, the thing that drives us is love. We know people and love them. We pray for them earnestly. When we know the needs and pains of other people, it makes us pray for them. And it draws us to this deeper prayer, you know, more than Lord bless Jimmy, more than Yes, even in the aches and pains of the body, which are important, we, we begin to see that people have brokenness and fractures within that need God's healing touch. We begin to see that there's people who, yes, on the outside appear to be all smiles and happiness, but inside are full of fears and, and they have hopelessness about some of the distresses that they're feeling. There's doubts crowding in on their minds. And as we get to know them, we see those things and we begin to pray earnestly for all of those things. We have to know them and we have to love them. Love deepens our prayer life. Really, our prayer life is proportional to the depth of our love. So how do we know people? How do we get to know them? If fervency of prayer is proportional to the depth of our love, then how do we get to know people? Well, here's some simple ways, very practical. Stay after church. Meet people you don't know. Share something to eat and a coffee and talk to them. Here's another way. Join a small group. 
I know it sounds like an advertisement, but I'm not really trying to advertise small groups. I'm trying to bless you because as you join a small group, you get to know those people and they get to know you and you begin to pray for each other. We are taking a little break from small groups for a month or two, but very soon we'll be starting them. And I, I hope you'll consider prayerfully joining one of those. I know it's hard to do. It's hard for me to do. I, I'm not a joiner. It's hard for me to be in conversation with people I don't really know that well. But the Lord will help us if we intend to grow in love. Oh, small group, another night away from home. Can I just zoom in? Would that be okay? But love is an investment in one another. It's getting to know one another. And as we get to know one another, our, we grow strangely, wonderfully. The fervency and earnestness of our own prayers deepens. And we do it because we know others and love others. What is love? Well, you see Paul's example. Love is personal. Love is wise. It recognizes there's spiritual dimensions to every relationship. Love is something that invites us to invest in this way, to know, get to know, and to love others, even if it means sometimes worrying about them and allowing that worry, that anxiety to overflow into prayer. So true love, it blesses us, it matures us, it grows us, helps us in every relationship we have anywhere. So it's not always easy to meet in person, but that's Paul's examples. There's some hard people in every church, every church. So it's, it, we might feel, you know, I, I think I'll stay at home, it's warm and safe, but then we miss out on this joy that Paul talks about. You know, chapter 3, 18 and 19 we wanted to see you. He says, you are our hope, our joy, our crown, our exaltation. Imagine that. What joy he had in being with those that he loved. We don't want to miss out on that. And yes, true love is wise. It's loving others with eyes wide open to the whole reality of the spirit world. It sees that just as the Holy Spirit labors to make us one, so the evil spirit labors to splinter and drive us Apart. And so, as we embark on this journey of loving one another, we learn to say yes to the Holy Spirit. Every impulse that the Holy Spirit gives, every thought He puts into our mind, every reminder to join with others, to reconcile, to redeem a relationship, to, to heal something, we say, yes, Holy Spirit. I, I am eager to maintain the unity that you have created. And true love, yes, it's anxious. It's, it's, in, in chapter 1, verse 4, it talks about the labor of love. So, yeah, there's a work to it, being anxious, worrying, but that's what ignites our prayer life. So as I close, I, I pray that the Lord would bless this church so that we would grow in love with each other and grow and mature before the Lord as we learn to love each other. Amen.